The following audio is from Amaze KC. More information about Amaze KC is available online at www.amazekc.com. Well, good morning. How are you today? Good? Okay, three of us are good. All right, well, we'll work with that. Take your Bibles. Let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. We're going to read this passage, and then we're going to turn to Ephesians 5 and 6, and we'll come back to Deuteronomy 6 later in the sermon. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. We find ourselves today in week four of a four-week series that we're calling Gospel and Culture. Gospel and Culture. And so over the last three weeks, and then including today, we've discussed issues that we believe are central to our culture and how the gospel speaks to those issues. And so a couple weeks ago, we, we, in the first week of the series, we talked about racial reconciliation and what the gospel speaks to when it speaks to race, that all are created in God's image and, and all are to be united under Christ. And so we called us to be active in our thinking and in our actions and in our love towards those who are not like us, those who might be different in color or nationality or or cultural background than us. The second week of the series, we dealt with sanctity of life and and not just um, pro-life as in anti-abortion, but pro-life as in all of life. Right, that we are called to be men and women as Christians, as followers of Christ, as the church. We are called to be activists. We're called to be pro-life in all areas of life. From conception in the womb until death in your old age, we are called to protect and stand for all people. Right? And so we impacted that and dealt with that. And then last week, we dealt with redeeming sexuality. And how our culture has been broken because of sin. That brokenness has caused great shame sexually. And that shame has led us to live broken sexual lives. And so we unpacked what the Bible actually teaches us about sexuality. That it's good. That it's glorious. That it's a gift. That it's to be enjoyed. And that it's for a purpose. And it's even to be for God's glory. It's worship to God. And so we unpacked what the scripture said about that and called us to be men and women who take action towards sexual wholeness for the glory of God. The stories that we've heard since last week are um, amazing. We've heard story after story of confession of sexual sin that some of you are involved in and sexual sin that was done to you by others that has caused you to live in shame. So our community groups had deep, rich conversation about this. Some of you have contacted our pastors and said, we need help. I don't want to walk through this. How, how can you help me find healing and wholeness in this? Some of you said, I never knew. I never knew that that side of me could be redeemed. I just thought it was something I had to deal with. And so God has brought healing in many lives and beginning the journey of healing in many lives. It's been an incredibly refreshing week to hear 
and see that. And I just want to press in on you as a church to pursue confession with each other. To pursue confession with each other. Sam mentioned it in his time of confession before. Confession only bears life. It only brings life. The idea that we would not confess our sins to one another is buying in to what we talked about last week of living in shame. That this is too shameful for me to tell other people, especially mixed company. And we want to be a church that stomps that to the ground and says, no, the gospel removes the shame and says, if we confess, we find life. And so we want to push us as a church towards that. Lovingly and gently, but push us towards being a church that finds wholeness through confession. So press into that in your community groups, those of you involved in the community groups. If you're not involved in a community group, get involved in one. Stop by and talk to us at the Connect table and find out how do you take what we're talking about here this morning and actually put it into practice in life through community. So those are the topics that we've discussed. If you didn't hear those sermons, if you weren't here for those, and I see several new faces here today, it's it's exciting. We're continuing to grow. Last week was the largest um, uh, gathering that Emmaus has ever had by one person. We beat our old record by one. We count that. We're continuing to grow and reach new people. So there's a lot of you here today who aren't connected with community groups. They are a life-giving group of people who are covenanted and committed to you to walk through your ups and downs with you. All right, so stop by the Connect table. We'll tell you more about those. Today, our topic is family discipleship. Family discipleship. Now, I will admit that at first glance or at first hearing that, it could sound like this idea of family discipleship is the the most uncontroversial, uncomplicated, and unurgent of all four topics we've discussed. Race seems to grab a stronghold on our hearts and in our culture, admittedly, as does sanctity of life and as does sexuality. And it could be that this sounds almost like it doesn't even fit in a series on gospel and culture. How does family discipleship, doing discipleship within the family, parents training and raising their children to love Jesus, how does that fit into this series? How does it carry the same weight as these other topics? And the answer is this. The outflow of family discipleship will shape our gospel understanding and response to every cultural topic we face for generations. The outflow or the outcome of family discipleship will shape our gospel understanding and response to every cultural topic we face for generations. Today, what we are dealing with is a topic that literally has the ability not just to shape our gospel handling of cultural issues as adults, but to shape the gospel handling of cultural issues for our children when they are adults. What we deal with today as we talk about family discipleship is that we are laying the foundation so that our children will view race, will view sanctity of life, and will view sexuality among a number of other topics through gospel lenses. If we remove family discipleship, we remove the possibility and the opportunity for our children to view life through gospel lenses. Now, perhaps by the grace of God, he sees to it that your child grows to love and see the world through gospel lenses despite our failures, despite our apathy as parents. Don't miss out on the joy of being a part of what he does in their life. And don't take that possible grace of God for granted. 
We want to be a church, a people that press in on the gospel as families. And take it from me, a fifth generation pastor and church planter. A man whose parents took family discipleship seriously, and their parents took family discipleship seriously, and their parents took family discipleship seriously. None of which took it perfectly. None of which did it seamlessly. All of which had massive failures in that process. But for generations, families speaking the, of love of Christ and Christ's love of us to their children, passing it down, and I am a result of that. An outflow of that. The Bible has a lot to say about families. There's a lot to say about it. And so today we want to unpack some of that. Now, so that we don't ignore any part of the family, Ephesians chapter 5 addresses multiple aspects of the family. And I want us to see what the scriptures tell us in the New Testament and Paul's writings to the church at Ephesus about family discipleship. And then I want us to go back to Deuteronomy and look at the passage we just read, which is um, the most famous verse and passage on family discipleship within scripture. And I want us to see how it is life-giving, not demoralizing, how it is hopeful, not intimidating. In Ephesians Paul has been writing about the gospel life, believing the gospel, and then living out the gospel. And in Ephesians 5, verse 22, he begins to deal with wives and husbands. Right? The Bible speaks to how husbands are to respond to our wives, how we are to treat our wives. And, and to sum it into one word, it is love. That we are to love our wives. And the illustration it gives us in Ephesians 5, verses 22 and following, I would love for you to to mark that if you're not familiar with this passage and come back and read it in depth later. But the illustration it gives us is that we as husbands are to love our wives sacrificially as Christ loved the church sacrificially, even to the point of death. That literally husbands are to give of themselves for their wives, give up themselves for their wives. That there's actually a part of it where we as husbands give up every right we once held for the sake of our wife. The Bible leaves no room for a selfish husband. It leaves no room for a self-centered husband. The point of marriage, when you say I do and you commit to that woman, the rest of your life is spent to sacrifice yourself for her. Why? Why? Because in doing so, you demonstrate, you illustrate, you display the very gospel that Christ gave up all of his rights for the church, for you. He gave up his home in heaven. He gave up his riches. He gave up his wealth. He gave up his comfort. He entered flesh. He suffered, was beaten, was bruised, and died, literally giving himself up for his bride, the church. So husbands are to do that. Jonathan Parnell defines this this way. True manhood is man's response to God's calling for men to gladly assume sacrificial responsibility. True manhood is man's response to God's calling for man to gladly assume sacrificial responsibility. Not begrudgingly, not mumbling underneath your your breath as you do it, but to embrace it sacrificially and willingly. You would give of yourself for your wife. 
And then it speaks in this passage to wives and their husbands. And the illustration, if we were to sum it up in a word for wives to their husbands, is this, to submit. Now, we are not spending enough time on this topic for me to throw that word out there and some of you not get mad at me today. This is not a message on marriage, but that word is not as dangerous as our culture makes it out to be. And it is in no way, ladies, degrading. There is nothing within Scripture that degrades a woman. There is nothing within Scripture that calls and says that a woman is less of value than her husband in any way, shape, or form. Rather, God saw that man had a great need, and God fulfilled that need by giving him a great woman and said these two complement each other. They make this good. And to submit, what it is referring to is not in some subservient way, but it is in a partnering type of way. That you as the woman see God's call on a man and you walk in partnership with him, submitting to his leadership as you follow God's call. And so it sums up that wives are to respond to their husbands this way. And then it gets into chapter 6. And it deals with children and parents. Chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. To sum up children's response to their parents, what the Bible calls children to do is it calls them to obey and to honor their parents. Right? If you are a child and you're still in your, the home of your parents, you're still living with them, they still have that headship over you, you are to obey them. And the scriptures actually go as far as to say that your refusal to obey your parents is your refusal to obey God. That he calls you to obey your parents. And so if you're a child in the room and you leave here today, your application to take from this is to obey. Obey mom and dad. Now there's not many children left in this room right now. Most are in our kids area. But all of us are children to some degree, though not living underneath our parents' house anymore. If you've moved out from that, moved out from underneath your parents' headship, and you're on your own now, you're not responsible to obey your parents anymore. My parents are here today with us. They would attest that when I was a child, I obeyed all of the time. (laughs) And when I did not obey all of the time, which was part of the time, there would be spankings, mouth washed out with soap, groundings, Sat down at the kitchen table to talk. That was the worst. <laughs> Washed my mouth out with soap, beat me, and ground me for months. But don't talk to me, right? Don't, don't, have, don't have that conversation of, now, do you understand what you did, right? I, I just, that was miserable. I'd rather you beat me and me think that you love me than me sit down and talk with you and go, man, I made a big mistake. Now that I'm out from underneath their home, I don't, I don't have to obey what they say. And, and similarly, my parents don't authoritatively tell me what to do anymore. Right? They don't assume, well, he's our son. He must do what we say. Rather, that relationship changes. And now, rather than, than authority and me obeying that authority, it becomes wise counsel. It becomes a mom and dad who have more life experience than I do, who have seen more things than I have. In my case, who have walked with Jesus longer than I have. Who give wise counsel of what to do and not to do. And my responsibility now as a son who is 36 years old is to honor my mother and father. And I do that from the standpoint of being able to 
to, to respect what they say, to heed what they say, to take their advice and their counsel to heart, many times to actually embrace their counsel and do it. And even when I choose to go against their counsel, to do so with respect and honor and, and love. And then when possible, to serve and care for my parents in any way I can. There will be a day that my parents are old and not able to take care of themselves. And in that day, it is my responsibility to honor my parents by taking care of them. Last night, my mom was talking about a pain in her neck. And I said, I'm so glad because I was beginning to think you had found the fountain of youth. Like you guys are just getting old and nothing ever goes wrong with you. Like you just, you're crawling around on the floor like you're 20. It kind of encourages me that at some point age is catching up. But it's reality, isn't it? That it does. It catches up. And then we are called to honor our parents even then. Now, what we want to talk about through the rest of this time is how parents are to respond to their children. If you have any more questions on husbands and wives and children that we've just dealt with, and you want more in-depth on that, I'd encourage you to go to our website, go to our sermons page, and look up the very first series we ever did here at Emmaus when we preached through the book of Ephesians. And we had sermons on those topics. And we'd love for you to, to listen to those and then to email us and ask us any questions you have. And we'd love to talk through any questions you have in depth on those. For the rest of our time today, we want to deal with how parents are to relate with their children because this is the aspect of family discipleship of parents pouring into loving and raising their children. And we see this in Ephesians 6, verse 4. Fathers, and it's specifically pointing to fathers here, though what we know within Scripture is that both fathers and mothers are responsible for discipling their children. It's speaking to fathers here in a headship way. The father is responsible over the house to God for this to take place. God looks to the father and says, is this taking place? But both fathers and mothers are to disciple, invest in their children. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Don't provoke them to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Provoking them to anger. When my daughter first um, became a follower of Christ. So for those of you that don't know me, I have two children. I have a two-year-old boy who was the one crying in the back of the room during worship today. So I'm like, far from the perfect father. He was crawling under the chairs, got stuck under the chairs. I pulled him out of the chairs. He started wailing in the back of the room. Right? That's my two-year-old. And then I have a 17-year-old adopted daughter. Right? So, so we adopted our daughter when she was 14 years old, through the foster care system, she came to live with us as a foster daughter. We had not been able to have children for years, and then the next month got pregnant. Right? So, so then we have a 14-year-old a and a baby. We're teaching her how to drive and him how to walk at the same time. It's much less scary to teach a child how to walk than drive. His life might be at risk, but mine is not, right, in that. So, so I, I have two children. My daughter's 17. When, when she became a follower of Jesus, she was 15 years old. She moved in with us. She hated God, wanted nothing to do with him. It was through the love of many of you in this room, some of you women. This was back when Emmaus was like nine of us, right? It was through the love. I say many of you, so three of you women, right, who loved her and poured into her and invested in her. 
that she saw Jesus to be real and his love to be real. And when she first became a believer, she started reading the scriptures and Emmaus was preaching through Ephesians at the time. And we happened to come across this verse, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And it became the first verse of scripture my daughter ever memorized. (laughs) And it was still to this day the one she has quoted the most. Because in those first six months, it was every day, right? Dad, don't provoke me to anger. Josh, don't provoke me to anger. Every time I teased her, every time I messed with her, every time I did it, don't provoke me to anger. The Bible says you shouldn't, right? Now, she was doing it as a joke, but, but, but that's reality, right? There, there's this reality within our, within our parenting for those of you who are parents, and there's many of you in here who aren't, so take good notes, right? Get ahead of the game. There's a reality in parenting that there is a point to which we as parents no longer are seeing progress, but instead we're actually provoking our children to anger. And so it begins with this caution. Before it tells us what to do, it tells us what not to do. And it says, do not provoke your children to anger. What does this mean? Well, in context, it has just told us about a child being honoring and obedient to its parents, to his or her parents. And so I believe that part of this idea of provoking your child to anger is for parents to have these standards and these expectations over their children that no matter how obedient or how honoring their child is, they can never meet their parents' expectations, their parents' standards. It plays out as well as a father or a mother constantly nag or correct or discipline their child, especially children who are trying to be obedient. It plays out as we as parents seek, speak law with no gospel. Right? As we give them rules, but we give them no grace. As we give punishment and discipline, but we give no, no gentle correction. As we have overreaction to sin or mistakes, expecting the child to be perfect. As we as parents have no grace when there is failure. As we give no applause or praise for the child's accomplishments or their character or their love of Jesus. As we as parents have standards for the child that we do not try to live up to ourselves or a host of other similar situations which provoke our children to anger. I'll just be honest. In my parenting with a teenager, my greatest weakness in this area, the greatest temptation I have is nagging. My daughter loves Jesus deeply, passionately. She is an incredible young lady. Sometimes I just dumb, and I nag her because she didn't take the dog out. Like that matters in eternity. It matters to my floors, but not in eternity. And I found myself in studying this having to go, I'm so sorry. I nag you for little things sometimes. My daughter is resilient. Yours might not be. One nag might crush your child. Mine has learned to deal with it through her life. But what I don't want to happen is 10 years from now, her to look back and go, man, I'm so bitter. I'm so upset. It just seems like I never could meet their standards. And worse yet, I never want my daughter to think that God looks at her and nags her the way that I do. You hear me on that, parents. Your responsibility as a father 
is to teach your child how God fathers. And God doesn't nag. God gives grace and gentleness and love and forgiveness every time. He even says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, all who are tired and weary. Are you as a parent developing within your house a culture for the weary? Perhaps your child is 10 months old, 18 months old, and you're like, I don't know how they could be weary right now. They will be one day. The sin of this world will crush them. And you as a parent have to develop the culture now within your household that you're home, and you as parents are safe for a weary and broken child to come to, for a sinning child to come to. If we think that confession is important within the corporate gathering of the church, how much more is it important within this singular family setting? And if we are crushing parents, our children don't learn to confess sin, but to hide sin. And they develop shame within their lives. And that leads them to not confessing throughout the rest of their lives. And they walk with shame and brokenness for years. Develop a culture of confession for the weary, safety for the weary, so that we don't provoke our children to anger. So he tells us, do not provoke your children to anger. And then he gives us the positives. And he says this. But bring them up in discipline and instruction. In discipline and instruction. These words are slightly different. One means active training about God, to, to, to know about God and to live in godliness of following after God. And the other one is a warning to avoid evil and sinfulness. Right? That we are to bring up our children. I love the term bring them up. That we are to bring up our children to know about God and walk in godliness. So following him and to flee from hate and avoid sin at all costs. That is our responsibility as parents. As a parent, your responsibility is not simply to provide for your children's needs. It's not simply to feed them when they need food and to make sure they have clothing on their backs when they walk out the door. What you do in your house, that's your business. Right? Your, your responsibility is not just to raise your children to understand economics and politics and culture and know how to be socialized with people. Our responsibility as Christian men and women, as Christian parents, as followers of Christ who have been given children by God, our responsibility is to disciple them. To bring them up to know God, to follow God, and to hate and avoid sin. Anything less than that is failure on our part to fulfill the command and the responsibility God's given us as parents. So this is what we are called to do. Now, here's what I understand. That can be intimidating. But that that can be an intimidating idea, an intimidating task before us. Some of you might even be saying, that's why I can't have kids yet. Right? I can't follow Jesus on my, myself, let alone lead someone else to do it. Some of you are like, that's why we should not have had kids yet. No wonder there's something wrong with them. Right? Some of you in here are saying, man, I, I, I have done so much, such a bad job at this. How can this ever, ever be corrected? 
Some of you might have the question, how can I ever do that? I don't have time or the knowledge to disciple my children. And some of you might even be here going, that's why I brought them to you today. I brought them to church so that they would be discipled. Wrong. That's just wrong. The church has a part in the discipleship of your children. I believe the church has a major part in the discipleship of your children. I believe the New Testament calls the church to be a family that part of that is that we are walking with each other and raising each other's kids. I want you to help me raise my children to love Jesus. But the primary responsibility for your child is you. So this is on us. And it can be intimidating. Trust me, there's a reason that we start out with babies, not teenagers. I believe it's in God's grace that most of us begin with babies, not teenagers. They don't remember your selfish mistakes, parents. You have a couple years before their long-term memory develops for you to figure out how to actually be a self-sacrificing father and mother. You start out with a 14-year-old, you don't get that buffer. They remember everything, and you're constantly embarrassed at your own selfishness. It's an intimidating thing, but it's doable. And I believe, if you'll look with me to Deuteronomy, to where we read first, that it's more doable than we might at first think. It's simpler than we might at first think. Someone asked me this week, so whose model are you following for family discipleship? Are you following this guy's model or this guy's? There's men who write on this. There's good books on this. There's some terrible books on this. You can find a number of books on parenting in the Christian world, and some are phenomenal and some are terrible. My response was, nobody's. Just going to the Bible on this one. Is going to the Bible. I've done the least bit of outside research I've ever done in my life on this sermon. It's just the scriptures because I believe it's that simple. I believe it's that simple. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words I command you today shall be upon your heart. Step one, parents, to family discipleship, is you have to love God. You have to love Jesus with all that you are, parent. You can't fake this. You can't pretend this into being. We have to love him. The first step to bringing up our child to love and follow Jesus is for you and I to love and follow Jesus. The first step to family discipleship is for you, parent, to be a disciple. This is not something we can fake or get ourselves through. For 10 years before being a church planter, I was a youth pastor of various sized churches. I had youth groups of seven and youth groups of hundreds. I had youth groups that the kids were primarily wealthy and primarily poor. I had white, black, Hispanic, international, all within those groups. I had church kids and unchurched kids. The singular thing I saw that made a difference when that child graduated high school of whether or not they continued to follow Jesus and remain faithful to the church was this. Were their parents in love with Jesus? That was the most common denominator. Not their parents went to church. 
Not their parents were moral. Not their parents made them go to church. Not that they had good family structure. Not that their parents even invested in them well or allowed them to do whatever they could do to better themselves in life. Were their parents in love with Jesus? When you saw a passionate parent, you almost always saw a passionate child. Almost. You and I both know that's not a hard rule. There's some of you who will parent your child through passionate love of Jesus for all of your days, and they won't follow Christ. If you are passionately following Jesus and you're pouring the gospel into your child's heart, that's not on you, parent. We also all know children who are passionately, grew up to passionately follow Jesus, whose parents had nothing to do with that. There are exceptions. But the most common denominator were, were, was were parents passionately in love with Jesus. Because when they were passionately in love with Jesus, they taught their children not just religion, not just morality, but they taught them love of Jesus. We have to be men and women Parents who love Jesus, if we are to disciple our children to love Jesus. And here's the good news about that, church. Parent, here's your good news. If you love Jesus with all that you are, you're halfway there to family discipleship. It's the first of two steps. That's beautiful. You're halfway there. Be encouraged. And you have the most important part of it, the foundation. You have to love him. But what I know is there's some parents in this room who aren't in love with Jesus. There's some parents in this room who don't love God. There's some of you who are apathetic to him. If you try to raise your child to love Jesus, to love God, and yet you are not in love with him yourself, you'll find that you provoke your child to anger. And you will find that what you are teaching is not actually love of Jesus but some morality, some religiosity, some thing that won't get them to heaven, that won't cause them to have the joy of knowing God. You have to love him to show your children how to love them. If you teach your child to love Jesus without loving him or yourself, you're provoking them to anger. You can only teach love of Jesus by loving Jesus. Your children will learn to trust Jesus with their money by seeing you trust him with their money, with with your money. They'll learn to trust Jesus in grief by seeing you trust him in grief. They'll learn to hate sin by seeing you hate sin. They'll learn learn to love the scriptures by seeing you love the scriptures. They'll learn to love Jesus when they see you love Jesus. And so if you're a parent in the room, and, and it's time to leave here today at the end of the service, and you do not love Jesus with all that you are, Here's your responsibility when you walk out these doors. Your responsibility is not to go home and try to disciple your children to love Jesus. Your responsibility as a parent who at this moment does not love Jesus with all that you are is to leave here and seek to love Jesus with all that you are. Until you get that, you cannot disciple your children to do the same. For those of you who do not yet have children, take the opportunity to love Jesus with all that you are. Confess your sin Repent of it, turn from it, do all the dirty digging you need to do in your life to bring yourself to a place of loving Jesus with all that you are. So when you become a parent, you can teach them to love Jesus with all that they are. 
must stir this affection up within us. We must do what it takes to do that. We must confess our sins. We must read the scriptures and pray. We must find ways to remember what Jesus has done for us. We must have conversations with others about what Jesus is doing in their lives to encourage us and to tell them what he's doing in our lives to encourage us. We must evangelize, share the gospel with words to other people. I found little to ignite the love of Jesus in my heart like telling other people about the love of Jesus. If your life is void of evangelism, it is void of the fullness of love of Christ. We must Sabbath and rest, and we must place ourselves in places where we see and hear from God so that we would love him and love him well. We must love Jesus. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've never trusted in Jesus, never hoped in him, you've never begun to love him, you're like, I just hope my kids turn out and they don't kill somebody. I hope they don't end up in prison. I hope they're, they're nice today. There's more for them than that. But there's also more for you, parent. Jesus offers you everything because he offers you himself. He offers you grace for every sin you've committed, forgiveness for every evil that you've thought. He offers you justification when you've done nothing but rebel. And he offers you all of this because he took the punishment of God upon himself so that you would not have to, parent. So if you're here and you've never trusted and hoped in Jesus, that's where you begin. You trust and hope in Jesus for the salvation of your soul. Then you fall in love with Jesus and you teach your children to love Jesus. Secondly, Ephesians 6, 5. He shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign upon your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Step one, love God. Step two, teach your children these things. Teach them the commands that he's given and teach them to love him. Two steps to family discipleship. Love him and teach your kids the same. So, But how? That seems hard. What? I don't know how we add that in. I don't know where we do that. Do, do, we, do, we, do we create like a, a family worship time, like once a week where, you know, I learn how to play the guitar and, I, and we do some songs together? Because you can't worship God unless there's a guitar, obviously. Do, do, we, do I do that? Do, do I make my wife do that? Because you already said she's supposed to submit, so you need to learn how to do the guitar. Is that how? Do, do, I, do I develop this? Do I need a implement a special time of Bible study every week in my house? How do I do this? Well, the, the answer is maybe. Possibly that's your path. I would avoid the making your wife learn how to play guitar part. The rest of what we just said, possibly. That might be what you do. But I think it's simpler than that. I think that might become part of what you do, but I think it's simpler than that. If you're anything like my family... You might be looking at it going, I don't even know where I'd fit in the week an extra 
20-minute worship service. Or, or my son's two. I don't know where he would ever sit through a 20-minute worship service. We've got, we got 30 seconds with him, and then a minute with him. We're working to increase that. So what's this look like for us? I think it's beautifully simple. I think it's simple because the text says it's simple. Verse 7, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Parents, let me ask you a question. Do you have a chair in your house? Do you have a chair? Do you sit down there? No one has a chair. If you don't have a chair, take the chair home with you that you're sitting in today. (laughs) We'll buy some more chairs here. All right? It turns out if you don't have a chair, that's fine. This doesn't say when you sit in a chair. It just says when you sit down, grab a floor space at your house. We sit at our home. Do you lie down? Do you go to bed? Some of you who are students, you're like, no. Some of you who are like parents of like toddlers, you're like, no. I wish I lied down. We lie down. Do you get up? Case in point today, you got up. You're here. Every day there's a point in the day that you get up. Do you walk? Do you go anywhere? You can do this. He makes it this simple for us. Love God and teach your children to love God. Well, how? Well, do you walk places? Do you go anywhere? Yeah. Teach them then. Do you sit down in your house ever? Yeah. Teach them then. Do you ever lie down? Yeah, I lie down. Teach them then. Do do you ever get up? Yeah, I get up. Teach them then. You don't have to add in anything extra. Just do what you're doing intentionally. Do what you're doing intentionally. Every step of the journey, intentionally looking for the opportunity to tell your children about Jesus. You go, well, what do I even tell them? If you love Jesus with all that you are, you'll have something to tell them. You see how simple that is? Now, I'm not letting you off the hook that you should learn more. To study theology, study the scriptures. Obviously, case in point, you don't love Jesus with all that you are until you study who Jesus is. You have to study him, to know him, to read, to research, to to understand him, to talk to other people. Sam, tell me why you love Jesus. Tell me why you love Jesus. Tell me why you love Jesus. You're learning from people who can point you to the scripture. If you don't have scriptural grounding and background, go to someone who doesn't say, teach me from the Bible why you love Jesus so that I can love him more. This room is full of people who would like be giddy over that opportunity with you. They would be like, dude, let's have coffee eight times this week. One, because I love coffee, and two, because that's exciting. And they would want to help you love Jesus so that you have something to tell your children. This is the most practical sermon I think I've ever preached here. I want to give you some very practical illustrations of this in my life. Very, very practical illustrations of this in my life. Number one, read the Bible in an open place for your children to see. 
Read the Bible in an open place for your children to see. My mom has done this every morning of my life. Every day I got up to go to school or to do whatever, my mom was sitting on the love seat reading the scriptures. It instilled within me that there was a love of the scriptures in her and that they were to be valued. My wife does this in our green chair in the corner by a lamp almost every day at our house. The children see. Now, a suggestion on this. Read an actual Bible. Leather, paper, wood-bound, metal, whatever you have, but not electronic. Why? Because you want your kids to know what you're actually reading. They walk by, they might think you're scrolling social media or playing a game. Gotta be Candy Crush. Let them see you're reading scripture. You're like, well, isn't that like putting my holiness on display for my children and that's kind of prideful? No, that's teaching your children to love the scriptures. A complication to this you will be interrupted. Your son will come in the room wanting you to play with his train set. And your reading of the scriptures might get broken up and it might get cut shorter than you would have enjoyed. I would rather your reading of the scriptures be interrupted a dozen times and your children to see you reading the scriptures than for them to never know you read them. Read them in public so your kids see you love the scriptures. And then when they interrupt, talk to them about what you're doing and why you're doing it, and even invite them onto your lap to tell them what you're learning about Jesus. Number two, when driving. You guys drive? Okay. When driving, listen to good, theologically rich, and fun worship songs. Those are all important, good, for your sanity as the adult. You want good quality music. You can only have enough wheels on the bus. There's only so much you can handle. Good quality music for your sanity. Theologically rich for the souls of your children. Which means it might not be able to be Christian radio. If you can skim past the songs, you can't listen to the dialogue between the songs and good, good, theologically sound talk. And everything your children hear, they're learning from. I don't listen to Christian radio because it's theologically poor most of the time. You might need to get a Spotify account or some sorts. And you need to get songs that your kids will love that are theologically rich, that will teach them, that are fun for them to listen to. They're children for crying out loud. Don't make them become introspective yet. Let them have some fun. Let them clap some, make up hand motions. You get goofy with it, and then you talk about the lyrics with them. If you need some suggestions, look for Sovereign Grace. Their kids' album, Theology, is phenomenal. Austin Stone Kids and Citizens are all favorites in our family. Listen to good, theologically rich music with your children and talk about the lyrics and sing the songs with them. Number three, explain to your children what we are doing when we gather here. Don't just bring them here and have no conversation with them. We've intentionally designed our worship service for your children to sit in here during the time of worship before they go to kids. 
We did that intentionally so that your children could see you as mom and dad worshiping Jesus. So that they could see confession and hear scripture read. So that you as the parent don't just buy your time till you get to send your kids out of here, but you can have a conversation with them while it's going on. So if you watch me with my son, I hold him at least at some part of the worship service and I make sure he understands that what we're singing is songs about Jesus. And I'll make it as simple for him as possible because he's two. He said, did you know we're singing songs about Jesus? Yeah. You know why we sing about Jesus? Yeah. Why? Uh, We sing about Jesus because... He's big. He made you. Did you know Jesus made you? Yeah. Who else did he make? Mom, mom? Yeah. Who else did he make? Dadding? My name has an I-N-G at the end. <laughs> who, who else did he make? Bob, Bob? That's our dog. Bob Ross. Asa calls him Bob, Bob. <laughs> what else did he make? He told me peanut butter and jelly one time. PB. That's right. God made PB. Praise the Lord. Because he makes these things, son, we sing to Jesus. Because he's worth us singing to him because he's so good to us. Last Sunday, after you all were clearing out, there were very few of you here. My son came up and he was playing the drums because that's the privilege the pastor's kids get. (laughs) And then he walked up on stage and he pointed to this microphone, which his mom uses to sing from periodically for lead us in worship. And he said, mom, mom. I said, yeah, mom sings from that. He said, he wanted the microphone, so I gave it to him. Sorry, sound guys. I said, okay, sing. And he started singing, Jesus loves me. Right, because he knows that in this place, we sing songs about Jesus. Now, for my daughter, it looks much different. <laughs> I don't bend down to her during worship. So, hey, do you know, who are we singing to? <laughs> I, I would have to bend way down. She's short. But, but that's not how... It goes, when we leave here, we go, hey, what stood out to you in the service today? It can be anything from the scriptures we read to the confession to the songs that we sang to the sermon. What stood out to you? On my sabbatical last, you know, at the beginning of this month, we visited some other churches and, and I would have the conversation, what, what did you think about that church? And I wasn't looking for like, well, the coffee was bad. I was looking for like in the songs and in the sermon and what you heard and what you saw, what did you think? Tell me what you observed. Because I know that in a year, my daughter is going to be leaving our house. She's going to be going off to college and she's going to have to know how to find a church that preaches the gospel. So let's have a conversation. Do we know how to find that church? Do we know how to decipher that? Explain to your children why you're here. Four, look for moments to have teaching points. For Asa, this happened last night. His, his mom, my, my wife, is really sick right now. And so she, um, she's being tested for celiac tomorrow. And uh, so she's had to eat gluten every day this week. And a little bit makes her sick for two weeks. So she's just in bed, really sick right now. Asa's very sad about it. And it's the first time he's noticed and known. He was so sad. We're driving to go see his grandma and grandpa who are in town for a conference. And so we're talking about mama. He's like, are you sad about mama? Yeah. He makes a sad face. So cute. Like, I wish he was sad more so I could see it, you know. And <laughs> he's so sad about her. And so we're talking through that. And I'm like, I'm like, hey, so do you want to pray to Jesus that he can make your mama better? Because Jesus heals people. Yeah. Okay, let's pray to Jesus. Say, Jesus, Jesus, help mama feel better. 
duh. Okay. <laughs> right? That, he summed up the whole sentence in two letters, duh. Great. And then his face was glowing with this, like, joy. And I was like, thank you for praying to Jesus for your mama. Jesus answers our prayers. Did you know that? Yeah. You know, he doesn't fully understand, but we're laying those foundations, right? For my daughter, this happens with her friends often. My greatest teaching points with my teenager. For those of you who don't have teenagers, you'll get there and your children in grade school are there probably now. Their, kid, their friends go through crazy stuff. And to use those as opportunities to talk about the love of Jesus. And what would Jesus say to your friend's brokenness in this area? How are we then to love them accordingly as Jesus did? And have those conversations. For time's sake, let me move quick. Five, we ask forgiveness when we can, when we sin. When you as the parents sin, you ask forgiveness from your children. I don't need to explain that anymore. That is fundamental. Six, Keep your promises. Because our God is a God who keeps his promises, and you're teaching your children what God the Father is like. I'll never forget, on a drive to Independence one day, Asa wanted to go swimming so bad, and I told him we would go swimming. I said, I promise you we'll go swimming when we get back. And the day just kept having these turns of events and brokenness. And I thought, maybe I don't need to do that. Trisha turned to Asa and said, Asa, do you know we have a great dad? And Asa went, yeah. She went, we have a great dad because when he tells us he's going to do something, he always does it. (laughs) (laughs) Just drive, tears coming down my cheek. I've broken promises to a lot of people intentionally and unintentionally. By the grace of God, I never break a promise to my child. I don't want to break it to anyone else. My children are learning about God's faithfulness. We went swimming, by the way. <laughs> love your wife well. Love your husband well because you're representing Christ in the church. And then number eight, men sacrificially give to your family. Remember as a child going through a store and my dad we were, we were not a wealthy family at all. My dad would spend the money needed for everything the family needed, and he never bought himself anything. And I remember, I remember being a boy, seven or eight, and being like just flabbergasted. And I, I don't know if I said it to him, but I remember thinking it to myself so vividly that it feels as if I said it. Why don't you buy yourself something? You make the money. And then I became a father. And I realized there's no greater joy I have than to give sacrificially of all that I have for my wife and my children. I'll go without for the rest of my life so that they could have. That's gospel-centric because Christ gave all that he was so that you could have all that he had. You see how simple this is, parents? It's not hard. It just takes intentionality. You love God, and then as you sit and as you walk, as you lie and as you get up, you're talking about the goodness of God, the love of God, and you're sharing the gospel with your children. Emmaus desires to help us with that, church. We desire to walk with you in that. We're releasing a few new resources this week to do that, one of which is every week following the message, we'll be doing a Facebook Live 
um, presentation, which if you knew me in social media, you would like think that's the weirdest thing ever because I hate Facebook Live. I don't like your notifications coming in my phone. <laughs> but I'm going to send them back to you finally. And we're going to talk briefly in just a couple minutes about our sermon and give you as parents points to talk with your children throughout the week. We want to help you disciple your children, have ideas to talk about. And then every Friday, beginning this Friday, there'll be a blog post posted that is on family, family equipping, helping us as parents be able to raise our children to love Jesus. So be watching for those. We want to walk with you as parents as we disciple your children together. And then lastly is this. Parents here who have failed at this miserably, who have broken promises and not invested in your children and have wasted opportunity and maybe your children are even growing up faster than you can believe and you're like, how do I ever make up for lost time? Hear me on this. The very thing that we're sharing with our children is this. God redeems our brokenness. God heals our brokenness. It is not too late to start this at whatever age you are as a parent and whatever age your children are. Even if your children are grown and raised, it's not too late to start discipling them by investing the gospel into them. Rest in God's grace for you as a parent. Because until you rest in God's grace for you, you'll have no grace to offer your children. Rest in his grace and then speak that grace to them. And may our children grow to love Jesus. May we see over the coming years dozens and dozens of salvations and baptisms of our children. And I pray to God that one day, years from now, your children will be adults in this church and being sent out from this church, loving Jesus. Let me pray for you. Jesus, we thank you for this gospel that you've given us of Jesus, you coming and rescuing us from our sin. If there's anyone in here who does not trusted in you, may they do that today. And then for us who are parents, may you give us an amazing, amazing grace to share the gospel with our children, that we would be a people who embrace family discipleship as we sit and as we walk, as we lie down and as we rise. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.